Thanks for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to hear about how God is using Adventure Church to speak and work in your life. If you've got a story you'd like to share, please do so on adventurechurch.tv slash mystory. Also, if you'd like to support Adventure Church financially, you can do that online and help us bring messages just like this one to you each and every week. Now let's prepare our hearts to hear a word from God. Today's message, as we kind of wrap up this series, we're going to be kind of talking about generational parenting and really what it means to leave a legacy. And as I was thinking about this week, I remember years ago I heard this quote uh, uh, from Mickey Mantle. And everybody know who Mickey Mantle was, right? Played for the Yankees, one of the the greatest baseball players of of all time. Uh, Just an amazing, amazing baseball player. But uh, what many of you may not know about Mickey Mantle is that he struggled with a severe addiction to alcohol. He was a severe alcoholic, and in his early 60s, that had just caught up with him. He had cirrhosis, he had hepatitis, he had a lot of things that was, was ailing him, and he had just gotten a uh, liver transplant, and he sat down uh, to do this interview. Uh, the press was all there, he sat down at this table, and his family was around him, And this was in 1995, and as he's recovering from this uh, liver transplant, this this article begins to describe what he looked like. And it said the 63-year-old, that's all he was, was 63, one of the most electrifying players to ever grace the major league landscape, begins to tell the assembled press how lucky he's been all his life, how blessed it is to have been given such an incredible talent, and how that baseball had, had changed his world and embraced him so lovingly. Mantle's hands and arms are eerily thin. His fingers are so bony that his wedding ring dangles loosely. His wristwatch rests midway up his right arm and not around his thin wrist. And he goes on to say, he said, I owe so much to my family, to God and to the American people for accepting me as they have, for being such great fans. And he begins to choke up the skeletal and pale. He was so skeletal and pale as a result of losing 40 pounds Mantle goes on to talk about a life of regrets, a life of an internal hell, a life that he had squandered away because of alcohol. He goes on to tell the writers and his admirers in the world that he was no role model. He said, I was just a guy that was given a gift, a guy who was blessed and tortured at the same time. He said, God gave me the ability to play baseball. God gave me everything. But for the kids out there, don't be like me. There is a regret and sadness in his voice as he speaks apologetically. He said, all you've got to do is look at me to see that it's all been wasted, he says. My life has been wasted. His tears well up in his eyes, and he alludes to his 40-year bout with alcohol abuse that led to his liver problem. He said, I want to get across to the kids. Don't drink and do drugs. Mom and dad should be role models, not ball players. Sitting next to his, his son, Danny, Mantle becomes more emotional, saying, I wasn't even like a father. I don't even remember playing catch with my boys in the backyard one time. And later in life, I just turned into a drinking buddy. But now I feel more like a dad. Says he pauses and he bows his head. He mutters under his breath, looking straight ahead to the audience. He says, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to make up for it. He pauses again. His eyes sparkle from tears. His lips are trembling. He said, I just want to start giving back. All I've done is take. Little did he know, he only had four more weeks to give back. And he passed away just a month later after being discharged from the hospital. And I share that story with you to ask you this question. Mickey Mantle was a legend, no doubt about it. 
we'll always remember him for what he did, for the type of baseball player he was, for the statistics that he had. He will go down as a Yankee legend forever. He'll always be remembered. But what he said in that, he said, for, the, for people out there, don't be like me. I wasted my life. Because although he was a legend, he left no legacy behind. Because the only way that you can leave a legacy is, the, is, is by living your life in a way that you invest in people. The only legacy that lives on is the one that has been invested in people. And more specifically, our family and our children. My great-grandfather on my mother's side was a pastor. And I don't remember much about him. I do remember him. I remember uh, when he, he died when I was eight years old. He had Alzheimer's and he'd gotten very ill and didn't really recognize anyone anymore. And they, my family has told me that when I would come into the room to visit him, that there would just be a calmness about him, that we just had some kind of connection. And that as I was little, growing up, he would tell everyone, this one's going to be a preacher. This is, this is the one who's going to be the preacher. And they would go, ah, come on, Grandpa. Like, we don't want to put that kind of pressure on him. He can be whatever he wants to be. And he'd say, no, no, no. This one's going to be a preacher. That even someone who was my great-grandfather, two generations removed from me, greatly influenced my life in a way that really has had a profound impact on me. That there's been times where where I, I doubt my calling, where I doubt what God has asked me to do. And I can remember moments like that in my life where someone said, no, this is what God has for you. This is his purpose for your life. And so a generation I never really knew has greatly influenced my life today. And what we have to realize is, is we are who we are because of the previous generation. Some of the struggles that some of you had are the same struggles your parents had, some of the successes that you've had, or some of the same successes that your parents have had. And what we have to realize today is that you are someone else's future generation. You are. That you are influencing right now the generation that's following in your footsteps. So you are who you are because of the family who came before you, And the next generation will be who they are because of you. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, especially within the context of my children, that humbles me. To think that what I am now and what I do and the decisions I make and the actions that I have and the words that I speak are going to greatly impact the generation that's following me, especially my kids. We all have a future family, a family that we hope is going to be good and that we will love and that grandkids that we'll be able to hang out with and and, and our kids will come back home for the holidays. Like We all see this picture of of a future family and what you need to realize is that you are currently in the process of making your mark on that family right now. You are laying the foundation today for the family that you're going to have in the future. And today I want to talk to you about a familiar story that many of you have probably heard before if you've been around church at all. It's one of the heroes of our faith. In fact, Jake actually preached on this guy named Joseph uh, in our summer series at the Bible, The Greatest Hits, and talked about his life and his experiences. And this story covers about 60 years. It it takes up about two-thirds of the book of Genesis, and it really illustrates the power 
of generational parenting. And today I'm going to share this story with you with probably a twist that maybe you've never recognized before, because I had never recognized before, before I began to study this topic of family. And what we have to realize is, is that there is a, a generational thing when it comes to parenting and a way of thinking in generational terms that what kind of legacy, again, not being a legend, not, hey, my dad made a lot of money, my dad was this, or my mom was that, and they were a legend in my mind in some ways. I always looked up to them, but what kind of legacy are you leaving for your children? So as we kind of look at the, the context and the backstory to this in Scripture, uh, we, you guys remember in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had, I am one of them, so are you, so let's just praise the Lord, right arm, right, some of you went to Sunday school as a kid, some of you are like, what are you doing right now, Um, but Abraham, and then he had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had two boys, twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and so Joseph, this guy we're going to talk about today, was one of the sons of of Jacob. He was one of Jacob's boys. He was one of 12 kids, was the 10th in line. He was his father's favorite because he was born to his father's favorite wife. Yes, they had multiple wives then. I don't know how they managed to do that. I have trouble keeping one happy. Can't imagine trying to keep multiple ones happy, but he, Joseph had, or Jacob had a favorite wife, Rachel, just from God's story and how God had blessed him, and Joseph was his favorite kid. And so Joseph is growing up. How many of you had a sibling and you weren't the favorite one, right? You remember them, right? right? That's like me. Like I was not the favorite in the family, right? My sister was, and I was a twin too, so I, I understood that. And so, so there's, there's some jealousy. There's some, hey, he's the little runt in the family. He's my little brother. And so Joseph, God is going to use his life in a great way, and God's already laying kind of the foundation for his future, and God's given him all these visions and these dreams about how he's going to be in a position of influence and power, and that his, even his brothers are going to bow down to him, right? So if Joseph had any wisdom, he didn't at this time, he was just a teenager, he would have not shared that with his brothers, but he begins to tell his brothers, In fact, the Bible says he had a coat of many colors that his dad made him, that it was like the bling coat of the family. And he was wearing his bling coat around and he's telling his brothers, he's like, what's up? You guys are all going to be bowing down and worshiping me. And they're like, well, that ain't happening right now. And I'm about to put you in a family octagon chokehold right now and and prove to you that I'm still the one with power. But Joseph kind of had this attitude and and begins to kind of flaunt his dreams a little bit. And one day his brothers are out working. He's not working for whatever reason, probably because of his dad's favorite. And his dad sends him out to check on his brothers. So can you imagine, right? He's the little brother. He's the favorite. Dad gives him this nice coat. He has these dreams. He's bragging about them, right? And you're out working. He's not working because he's daddy's favorite. And dad sends him out to check on you to make sure you're working. And they see him coming in the distance and they go, here comes that dreamer. Here comes the, the, the little runt of the litter here. You know what? I'm so tired of him prancing around in his coat thinking he's all big and bad stuff. Let's just kill him. They literally plot to kill their little brother. So I'm just done with him. But one of his brothers gets a little bit of a conviction and says, well, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit that's here. And they're like, all right, let's throw him in the pit. And they're like, well, now what are we going to do with them? Well, these people are coming. 
and let's sell him into slavery. Let's at least get something for him, and then we can just lie to our dad and take back his coat, and let's mangle it up and put some blood on it, and we can just tell dad that he died, and then we can get some money, and man, he, he lives, and, but we go on. So that's what they do. They sell Joseph, he's 17 years old, into slavery. Joseph knew what it meant to be a slave. Can you imagine being Joseph, that you're thrown into this pit, You're scared to death, like my brothers are going to kill me, and then they sell you into slavery, and you're put in this caravan, and you're going off somewhere that you have no idea where you're going. You can imagine the fear that he had. You can imagine the emotion that he was feeling this time. He wasn't, he didn't have any problem understanding what was lying ahead of him. And so they sell him off into slavery, and he ends up getting bought by this guy named Potiphar. So Joseph is still keeping a great attitude. He's still holding on to his faith in God, which is something that we can all learn from, that he was a man of faith, that he walked with God. Even though it seemed like God had abandoned him, he continued to follow his plan and and to stay faithful and obedient. And so he's serving, and God gives him favor in Potiphar's house. The Bible's clear throughout Joseph's story that God just keeps blessing him and giving him favor. So he gets favor, and he rises up. He becomes like the top dude in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife had some issues And she begins to flirt with Joseph. She begins to get this attraction to this young guy who's serving in her house. And she begins to throw herself at him and says, hey, look, Joseph, me and you need to sleep together. And Joseph goes, no, 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 no. One, I'm not going to do that to Potiphar. He's been good to me. I'm not going to do that to my boss. Two, I'm not going to do that to God. I'm a man of integrity. So he denies her and she gets mad and then wrongly accuses him of raping her. And then he gets thrown into prison. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 39, verse 19. You can follow along in your Adventure Church app in the live section for notes or on the screen. But it says, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph, threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. I don't know about you, I want to have favor with God, but I could care less if it's with the warden at the prison, right? I'm sure Joseph could have just been like, "Uh, thanks God, glad me and the warden are cool, but I'd rather not be in prison, right? But he kept a good attitude. Joseph continues to live like a man uh, that God is with, even though God seemed that he had abandoned him. Joseph continued to do the right things, even though the right things never seemed to happen to him. So it says, before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners over everything that happened in the prison. And the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So in prison, he gets put in charge of all the prisoners. And there's two prisoners that end up coming. And they had worked for the Pharaoh. And there was a cupbearer and this other guy. And they come and they have these dreams. And they're going, we don't know what these dreams mean. And so Joseph interprets their dreams. He says, one of you is going to live. One of you is going to die. And he's like, oh, who? cupbearer. I'm, oh, I'm the one that's going to live? Cool, I'll take that. So sure enough, what Joseph interprets comes true. But he said, but when you get, to, when you get out, remember that I, that I told you this. Remember me, okay? I want to get out of here. Can you help me get out? And the guy's like, yeah, man, I'll remember for sure. Two years goes by. He's back in the palace. He forgets all about Joseph. Joseph is still in the prison two more years. Then his opportunity 
comes. Pharaoh has this dream. It's scary. It's kind of crazy. He needs someone to interpret it. All these other, like, you know, sorcerers and these magicians, they couldn't figure it out. And he goes, does anyone, does anybody know anyone who can interpret dreams? And finally the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, there was this guy in prison that told me that you were going to spare my life and kill the other guy. And what he said came true. And Pharaoh goes, go get him. Bring him up to me. So they get him all cleaned up get him looking good. They bring Joseph before Pharaoh. And then he has this moment where Pharaoh begins to explain his dream. What you have to realize is this Pharaoh was regarded as God. He was worshiped as a God. And so Pharaoh explains his dream to Joseph and Joseph goes, I'm not going to be able to help you on this. What? He goes, but, but my God will interpret the dream for you. So where does Joseph get this kind of faith, right? Where it's like, wait a second, you're before Pharaoh, you finally get out of prison, and you're risking not only going back to prison, but your life, because you're pretty much telling Pharaoh that he's not God, and that your God will interpret his dream. But he does. And God gives him favor, and because he did the right thing, because he acted in obedience, God continues to bless Joseph. So what Joseph predicts comes true. He predicted seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. So he said, here's the deal. We're going to have abundance for seven years, so we need to stockpile. We need to load up all the barns. We need to be ready because people are going to be coming to us for food, and if we're prepared, we're going to get rich, Pharaoh. Me and you, we're going to get rich because they're going to need food. We're going to be the only one who has it, and so we can begin to sell it. So Pharaoh's like, yeah, man, I'm all about getting rich. Let's do this. And so they do it comes exactly true. Seven years later, the famine is really bad. People are coming from all the the bordering countries into Egypt saying, we need help. We need food. We will give you whatever we have because when you need food, you'll give anything for it, right? You want to live? So everyone's bringing. And here's what happens. Just so happens that Joseph's brothers and his family back in his homeland are running out of food. So his dad, Jacob, still alive, sends his boys to say, look, we're all going to die if we don't get some food. So you need to go to where the food is and get us some food. And then in chapter 42, verses 6 through 7, it said that Joseph was the governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people. And it was to him that his brothers came. Finally, Joseph is going, my dream is coming true. All these years. It said when they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Dude, I would be happy if I was Joseph, right? I'd be like, ah, I told you guys. Yes! Y'all about to go down. About to just have y'all killed. You know what I mean? Like he he had that kind of power. And And it said that he recognized his brothers instantly. As soon as he saw them, he knew who they were. He remembered who they were. He pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to him. It's been 22 years since he was sold into slavery. He's 39 years old now. His dream is finally coming true. He has all the power. He has all the influence. He has all the authority. They are bowing down to him. And I can't help but think that all of his memories come flooding back. He remembers the fear of being thrown into the pit. He remembers how scared he was when he was sold into slavery. He remembers his first night in the prison when he was falsely accused. He remembers standing before Pharaoh 
literally with his life hanging in the balance. All of these feelings come flooding back in just an instant. Just kind of like we talked about last week, right? When reconciliation, when we avoid the topic and we run from the issues in our family instead of trying to resolve them and restore the relationship, that it just takes one moment and every memory comes flooding back. And here he is with his brothers sitting, bowing before him. What is Joseph going to do? What would you do? I already told you what I would do. But what does Joseph do? But in order to really understand what Joseph does and, and how he did it, we need to rewind back a few chapters into Genesis. And maybe this is part of the story for some of you that you haven't heard before or haven't seen it from this angle before. But let's remember who, when this, this idea of generational parenting, this idea of what the way we're living now is going to impact the generation that comes behind us. That Jacob was Joseph's dad. Jacob had a twin brother. His name was Esau, right? And so he's a twin. And Jacob is known as kind of the deceiver, a manipulator. And him and his brother were at odds why they were even in the womb they were fighting, the Bible said. And so when they come out, Esau's kind of this more manly, like rugged hunter type guy. Joseph is good in the kitchen, or Jacob's good in the kitchen. So Jacob's cooking. And one day, his brother was out hunting, and he comes home, and he's starving. He didn't have any luck. He's hungry. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And, and his brother's like, hey, you hungry? Esau's like, yeah, yeah, I'm starving, man. Jacob's like, cool. Hey, here's the deal. You know, when you, when you know your brother wants something, and you start at like the highest possible thing that you want from him, and then you just kind of work your way down, Jacob starts at the top. He says, hey, Esau, you hungry? If you want a bowl of stew... I got a bowl, I got a pot of stew here. You smell that? Smells good, right? Yeah, that's good, right? I will give you a bowl of stew if you sell me your birthright. Birthright, you may go, what is that? The birthright is what guaranteed Esau his inheritance of his father's wealth when his father died. And because he was the firstborn, he was going to inherit about three to four times more than Jacob. So Jacob deceives his brother, gets him to sell him his birthright, for a pot of stew. Esau immediately regrets it. Then later on, his father's on his deathbed. And the other thing that was important in the family in those times, it was a legal and binding kind of agreement, is where the father would would extend his blessing on his children. And he would bless them in a certain way where he'd say, you're going to get the wealth, you're going to get this, you're going to have this, this is the legacy I'm passing on to you. And so he's praying over them. And, And because Esau was the firstborn, he had the first right to his father's blessing. So Jacob again dresses up like his brother. His father's old. He can't see anymore. He's having a hard time, you know, hearing. And and so he deceives his father to say, I am Esau. Will you bless me? And so he blesses Jacob. So Jacob steals the birthright and the blessing. Well, you can imagine that Esau got a little ticked off, right? He got mad. And so Jacob's mom's like, hey, look, Jacob, Esau is ticked. Remember, he's the manly one. He's about to, he's about to just, he's going to kill you. So you need to get out of town and you need to go now. And so Jacob leaves, but he leaves with the blessing. He leaves with the birthright. And for 20 years, Jacob is off living in a foreign land, away from his family, away from his brother because of the fear 
that he had that Esau would kill him. And then all of a sudden in Genesis chapter 31 verse 3, it says the Lord comes to Jacob and says, return to the land of your father and your grandfather and to your relatives there. And he says, and I will be with you. Wait a second. Hey, God, do you remember what happened? I know I'm changed now. It's been 20 years. A lot has happened in me. I feel bad for what I did. But Esau, if I go back there, is going to kill me. But he, he, he acts in obedience. Jacob was, was following God in obedience. Joseph was a lot like his dad. And so Jacob goes to his family and he says, hey, look, we're going back home. Uh, hey, dad, uh, isn't that where Uncle Esau lives? Yeah, yeah, it is, son. Yep. Uh, doesn't he want to kill us? Yeah, yep, he does. But it's what God told us to do, so let's go. And they went with them. I wouldn't have gone with them. But they went. Jacob was faithfully obeying his God. So they begin their journey back home in Genesis chapter 33. It says, Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming. They're on their way. And what, Joseph was, or what Jacob had been doing was sending like gifts ahead of them. Like he'd send out some of his people and say, you've got to get ahead of us and take these gifts to Esau. He was trying to like smooth out the relationship. Have you ever done that before? Especially the guys, you send some flowers ahead of you on your way home, you know, hoping that things calm down a little bit before you get there. That's what, that's what Jacob's doing. He's sending out gifts ahead of him. And so finally he sees Esau, and it says he sees him coming with 400 men, a small army, right? That's when I go, retreat, run for your life. He's going to kill us. Get out. And that's what they're feeling. But he continues. And so it says that he divides his children up. He sees them. There's four men. So he goes, all right, we got to divide up. So he says, among them, Leah and Rachel, his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children out at the front. Thanks, Dad. Right? Like, what? Really? Leah and her children next, and then Rachel, his favorite wife, and who? Joseph, last. Genesis 33, 1 through 3, names Joseph. Joseph is there, and he's the only one of his brothers mentioned by name. It says, and as he approached his brother, Jacob was bowing down to the ground. In fact, he did so seven times times before him so Jacob steps out in front of his family he begins to bow down to his brother who he hadn't seen for 20 years begging for mercy and it says that Esau runs and embraces him and kisses him and weeps with him verse 33 4 through 7 chapter 33 verses 4 through 7 it says that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him threw his arms around his neck and then kissed him and they both wept together. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, who are these people with you? He said, these are my children that God has graciously, graciously given me your servant. Jacob replied, he says, I am now your servant, Esau. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before him as well. Next came Leah with her children. They bowed before him and finally Joseph, again, the only one of his sons mentioned by name, comes with his mom, Rachel, and they bow before their uncle. This is a story that Jacob not only remembered, but he heard all of his life. The day that Uncle Esau showed your dad some mercy. Have you, ever, you got 
Does grandpa or your father tell the story over and over again? You got one of those? Yeah, this was the story. Joseph was just a boy, but he remembered the day that his uncle Esau spared not only his life, but the life of his entire family. He remembered the day that his father bowed down before his brother and that his brother extended mercy and grace and forgiveness in spite of what Jacob had done, not because of what Jacob had done. So here we are, 30-some years later, and Joseph is standing there with his own brothers bowing before him. What is he going to do? If you think back throughout this whole series, last week we talked about reconciliation in spite of that that God did for us when we hadn't done anything for him and that he set that example for us. But it's also this powerful concept of generational parenting that Joseph chooses to do what his uncle did for him. And when he is faced with those bowing before him and he had every reason to be angry, to condemn them, He had all the power in the world in his hands. And he remembered what dad did. He remembered what Uncle Esau did. And his brothers are bowing before him. Now Joseph does mess with them a little bit. (laughs) If you know the story, he messes with them. Gives them a hard time, right? He's working through the feelings, the issues. But then in Genesis chapter 45... It says that he finally breaks down. And what does he do? It says he weeps with his brothers. He cries and weeps with them. The same way his dad wept with his brother. And he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he sent me ahead of you so that I could spare your lives so that I could extend grace in spite of, not because of. What your children see you do will lay the foundation for what they do in times of crisis. What your children see you do will lay the foundation for what they do in times of crisis. They will never forget that you did the right thing when the right thing was difficult to do. They'll never forget. Joseph did not forget. Look, our kids won't remember what we say, but they will remember who we are and what we do. My kids don't remember what I say in two minutes, right? Hey, don't do that. Don't don't do that to your brother. Two minutes later, they're doing it to their brother, right? But they remember what I do. My kids mimic me all the time. Maddox mimics me. Riley, they follow me. Because I'm their dad. Because they're looking up to me. They may not remember what I say. Many of you don't remember what I say. Right? You can't tell me what I preached three weeks ago. But you remember when I show up at the funeral. Right? You remember when I meet with you and you and your spouse are going through a difficult time. You remember those things. Because we don't remember what people say. We remember what they do especially in times of crisis. 
Joseph remembered what his father Jacob did. Generational parenting. Our children will do what we did. So dads and moms, what if, what if you are the role model for how your kids love and serve God? What if? What if you're the role model for how they treat their spouse? What if you're the role model for how they will lead and love their own children someday? What if you're the role model for their commitment to Christ, their commitment to His church and to serving in His kingdom? What if they take their cue from you? Because odds are, they will. So, in light of that, what if what you are doing right now is determining what your future family will look like? Will you leave a legacy of obedience to God? Will you leave a legacy of faithfulness to your spouse, to your kids and family, that when the crisis came, you didn't tap out And so when the crisis comes in their marriage, they'll go, mom and dad didn't quit. I'm not quitting. When the crisis comes in their finances and they lost a job, they'll go, God provided for mom and dad. He's going to provide for me too. When their schedule gets busy and kids are involved in every extracurricular activity they can be, and it just gets hard to show up at church, it'd be much easier just to stay home on Sunday to have a day of rest, to watch some football, not be at church. When it's not convenient or comfortable anymore, your kids go, no, mom and dad, man. Even when I hated it, we were at church. It's important. Kids, let's go. We're going to church. Will you leave a legacy of faithfulness? Will you leave a legacy of forgiveness? of reconciliation. You know what? Mom and dad forgave. My brother forgave in spite of what they did. So I will too. Will you leave a legacy that when it comes to the family octagon, the tapping out, it's not an option. It's not an option for our family. We don't quit on each other. We'll fight. The decisions you are making right now will affect the legacy that you leave behind right now. It will go on for generations to come. That humbles me as a dad. Humbles me as a husband. To go the path that I am walking right now is literally the same path that my kids are going to follow. Where am I leading my family? Where am I leading my kids? That humbles me. It challenges me. It makes me realize how much I need God. Because... It's not a matter of when or or if your kids will face a crisis or conflict in the future. They will. They will. And what they do in that time is largely impacted by what you're doing right now. Man. So if you want to leave a legacy, which I think we all do because we've discussed that in this series, there's the ideal and there's the real. Jesus bridged the gap, but the reason we strive for the ideal is because every parent says, I want better for my kids than what I had. I want them to be better off. 
So I'm going to be a better dad. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better person because I want my kids to have better than I had. Every parent wants that for their kid. Well, if you want that, if you want your kids to have a legacy, then you need to start living it right now. If you want to leave a legacy, you have to start living it right now. See, actions don't just speak louder than words. Our actions will echo into the next generation. So we have to ask ourselves, what will echo from your life into the next generation? So if this is true, if what we're doing now greatly impacts our children and the next generation and the future of our family, we all want the ideal, we all want them to have better off, we know that. But if this is true, what do you need to do differently? If this is true, what do you need to change? If this is true, why wouldn't we change, right? And why wouldn't we change as soon as possible? Because how you're living right now will determine the legacy that you leave your kids.